Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today, we are going to be looking at the book of John, chapter 3. We're actually starting with verses 1 all the way through 21, even though the Revised Common Lectionary starts at 14. Um, And I think that begins our first question. Why are we starting in 1? Well, John chapter 3, 14 and 15 is the conclusion of Jesus' interview with Nicodemus. And so, I think starting here really makes no sense. (laughs) I'm not really sure what the uh, people who devised the Revised Common Lecture were thinking, other than this seems to be a parallel to Jesus' passion prediction, and that's where we were last week in Mm -hmm. Mark's Gospel, so this seems to be sort of presenting the same kind of idea from, from John's perspective. But other than that, it just makes no sense to start it with verse it's 14. Pretty, pretty hard to just jump into your sermon right there. So, yeah. yes. So let's go back and talk about this interview with Nicodemus. Set the stage for us. Yeah. So unlike other Jewish religious leaders, it seems that Nicodemus is sincere in approaching Jesus by saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now, part of the, part of the problem with that, though, is that in both the Synoptic Gospels and especially in John's Gospel, a faith that's based on signs is not adequate. And so Jesus immediately responds to what seems to be the real question, and that is, how does one partake in the life of God's kingdom? And so his answer is, you know, um, you must be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And obviously Nicodemus misunderstands this, um, uh, thinking that a person has to be born again all over. Mm -hmm. Takes it very literally from how I've understood. Yeah. And as a sidelight, that makes sense. Uh, The phrase anothen in the Greek of of John 3.3 has a dual meaning of either born from above or born again. However, um, uh, Raymond Brown points out in his older magisterial commentary on John that uh, this is only possible in Greek. He was not aware of any Hebrew or Aramaic word that would have this same kind of ambiguity. So perhaps we're to attribute this to the author of the gospel. So Jesus corrects him by telling him he's talking about being born of God. And of course, this is a theme in John's gospel. And uh, being born of God is the work of the Spirit. And when Nicodemus still doesn't understand, he challenges him again. And, and Jesus says, I, I have, if I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? And this then leads to Jesus' supporting statement about the Son of Man. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So again, you know, even though... Nicodemus was sincere in his approach to Jesus, it would seem that his faith is Mm -hmm. inadequate. And so Jesus challenges him on several fronts, how one truly participates in the kingdom of God, the meaning of being born from above, the fact that he can speak authoritatively about heavenly things because he is the son of man who descended from heaven in his incarnation. Very good. Well, this sets the stage for us to talk about what the, the verses that are actually identified for the Revised Common Lectionary today. So, Tell us how this then moves us into this next section. Well, I think Jesus gives 
Nicodemus a further challenge for his faith, and that is, he says, that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may in him have eternal life. And here, obviously, in the text, Jesus compares the Son of Man being lifted up to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, and that refers to the bronze serpent that Moses made when the Lord sent poisonous snakes mm-hmm. to punish the people of Israel for their unbelief and disobedience. In that time, anyone who was bitten could look at the bronze serpent, and they would live. And so I think in this mm-hmm. context, then, the implication is that Jesus being lifted up will have a similar effect. Uh, He's lifted up so that those who believe may have eternal life. Mm -hmm. One of the questions here has to do with the the language of being lifted up. This is unique to John's gospel. Mm. Uh, John does not speak of the cross, per se. He uses this language of being lifted Mm -hmm. up. And in John's gospel, being lifted up refers to the crucifixion as part of a process uh, by which Jesus is exalted. And so the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension to glory, basically at the right hand of God, those are all part of the same process for John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's important to see that, you know, being lifted up, obviously, is talking about the crucifixion, but his crucifixion is not really portrayed in John's gospel as a humiliation, but rather as an exaltation. I was thinking it's very different than what we've seen maybe in Mark. Yeah, and um, what we see actually in, in other New Testament documents. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, very interesting. And so... Um, How does Jesus ultimately then respond to this idea of being lifted up? Even though we might not see it on the the surface of things, this is very much parallel to the passion prediction that we saw in Mark's gospel Mm -hmm. uh, last week. Because Jesus, when he refers to himself as the son of man, which also, you know, resonates with the synoptics, he also says that he must be lifted up. And he uses the same Greek verb, die, delta epsilon iota, mm-hmm. which indicates a divine necessity. And, and this is very similar then to the passion predictions that we have in the synoptic gospels. And again, I think probably was was behind one of the reasons why the Revised Common Lectionary puts P- this puts passage together. Right here. Actually, this yeah. makes a lot of sense since you're, as you're combining them together. It's begging me to think about this word die I think this is intentional use by John, yes? Oh, yes, I would think so. And to some extent, I mean, the fact that it is the language that's used in the Passion Predictions and the Synoptics could argue for the idea that that this language goes back to Jesus. Good point, good point. Well, and I always think about, you know, as a historian, I always think about oral tradition too. I Mm -hmm. wonder if this actually came into the oral tradition, especially if it was used by Jesus and then became kind of picked up as, as expected language, which... Gosh, don't you wish we knew? <laughs> I know. Well, and you know, obviously the facts of the matter are Jesus very likely spoke Aramaic. And so there was some translation in the oral tradition before it went from Aramaic to Greek. Mm-hmm. And so how much how, how much of this reflects Jesus? How much of this reflects an interpretation of Jesus? This we'll never know because we only have the, the, the gospels and we don't really have exactly. access to the oral tradition. The, you tell us here in, in the notes you've gave me about this um, this idea of, you know, the object of faith. So what is the object of faith? Yeah, so the idea is that the response to Jesus being lifted up on the cross is to believe, and that those who believe have life. Now, the question is open whether in him should be seen as the object of believing or whether it should be seen as an adverbial phrase modifying have eternal life. So is it those who believe in him, have eternal life or is it those who believe 
have eternal, eternal life, life in him. In him. Yeah. And there are no undisputed cases of the verb pistuo, believe, with the preposition N in the New Testament or the Septuagint as indicating the object of faith, the person in whom one mm-hmm. put, places faith. It just does not occur. This is a possibility. There's another possibility in Ephesians 1.13, but in both cases, it makes better sense to see the, the prepositional phrase in as referring to something else. And, and here, uh, mm-hmm. it makes better sense to see that it really does modify having eternal life. They have eternal life in him. Those who believe have eternal life in him. If you if you serve you just did a survey of the verb pistuo in John's gospel, you'd find that the vast majority of cases where they talk about believing in Jesus, it's either ice, the preposition mm-hmm, ice mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. accusative, mm-hmm. or it is the dative simply mm-hmm. by itself, or it is the preposition epi with the accusative. But there are no other occurrences of believe in being worded in the Greek as pistuo n with that preposition. It just doesn't happen. Very interesting. You know, just give us an idea what those two different translations mean in terms of... Well, I don't know that it's, it's, you know, a huge difference. I mean, those who believe may have life in him, or those who believe in him may have life. And it's not a huge difference. It's really more a matter of precision in language. And so we have life in him, meaning that in our relationship with him, which is defined by faith, obviously, we have eternal life. And, and that's a, a notion that is consistent not only in John's gospel, but throughout the New Testament. Uh, I will say, as an aside, there are a few translations that that um, translate it may ha- may in him have eternal life. The American Standard Version of 1901, which I've used for years because a, a, an Old Testament scholar friend of mine said it was the best English translation to use along with the Hebrew Bible if you're oh, wanting to, to yeah. place them side by side and have them at hand because it's a very literal translation. Um, the New American Standard also does that, by, by the way, which is oh, also a very literal translation. Huh. The New Inter- International Version actually okay. does this. Most English translations still use everyone who believes in him, and I think that really basically attests to the long reach of the King James right. Version and to the, I guess I would call it the um, notable cowardice of Bible publishers. <laughs> <laughs> well, anytime you have something like that, someone's going to comment, and uh, when it and I, I think there's also these verses are so well known and they're mm-hmm. so part of kind of our our Christian identity that you mess with them and you people get upset. Yep. People really do get upset. <laughs> yeah, and are, with this, I guess, what is is meant by eternal life here then? So the result of Jesus' death combined with the faith on the part of the believer is eternal life. And this is the way John's gospel consistently frames salvation is eternal mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, zoe ionios is the Greek phrase. Now, it occurs 16 times in John's gospel, but there's an additional 15 times when zoe is used by itself to indicate the life or the salvation that we receive Mm -hmm. through Jesus' death and through faith. So I think that the underlying question for a Jewish person really was how one could take part in the kingdom of Mm -hmm, God. And we mm -hmm. see that, I think, in Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Unless one is born from above, one cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And I would say that in John's gospel, eternal life then really describes this new life 
uh, that believers have. And I think it's the way that the authors of John's gospel have chosen to translate the idea of salvation in the kingdom of God for readers who didn't have much background in the Hebrew Bible. And I, I know um, that can be uh, a challenge is, you know, where is the kingdom of God in John's gospel? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, um, when I was first looking at this today, I was thinking of, you know, when I'm trying to encapsulate my little mindset about gospels, you know, I'm thinking John isn't about the kingdom of God so much. Um, so I thought this was particularly important that this is really a different way of um, realizing or and the understanding of the kingdom of God with this eternal life. It kind of it, it kind of is an aha moment, at least I think for many people that again are coming out of this tradition of kind of categorizing. Well, Mark was doing this and John was doing this, and here all of a sudden it's got this bridge of this kind of connected tradition mm-hmm. that I think is important. Yeah, I know that it's common to think that the kingdom of God is not found in John's gospel, but I mean, it's right there, John 3, 3. It's very clear that you, when you compare John's gospel to the synoptic gospels, that the authors of John's gospel have have done a sort of a translation or, or an interpretation of Jesus for a, a different audience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than the synoptics were addressing. But if you're trying to reflect the life and, and teachings of Jesus, it's going to be hard to erase kingdom of God from it entirely. And just get your concordance out and, and look for the phrase kingdom of God mm-hmm. in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll, you'll be surprised you how many times it, yeah, it actually how many occurs. It is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we head to one of the Bible's most famous and beloved passages, John 3.16. And brace yourselves, <laughs> friends, because Alan's going to tell us why it probably shouldn't be in red. <laughs> yeah, you know, John 3.16 to 21, like the, the parts of John 3 that proceed, are printed in red in most red-letter Bibles. I have several. And for that reason, many, particularly evangelical New Testament scholars, insist that these are the words of Jesus. Now, if you have a new RSV or an NIV, you know that there's a footnote that says that many others see this as commentary on Jesus' words by the authors of John's gospel, which would mean John 3.16 should not be printed in red. Now, I know that can be a little bit startling, a little bit shocking. It sounds like we're, we're against John 3.16, but it's really more of a matter of looking at what's going on with John's gospel. And actually, I came to this study with that notion. I, I, I have for a long time thought that John 3.16-21 reflects the commentary of the authors of the gospel. But really, currently, most New Testament scholars would argue that what we have throughout the fourth gospel is an interweaving of Jesus' words and deeds with the interpretive stamp of the authors of the fourth gospel. And so you really can't unravel where is this the historical Jesus and where is this the commentary or the translation or the interpretation of the authors of the gospel. It's so thoroughly interwoven. You know, I was as you're talking here, I was thinking about that this is this is drawn together for a specific reason mm-hmm. and, and crafted in a specific way. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Sure. Oh, cool, but thank you for that. Now, I will note, and again, this I'm not trying to say I'm against John 3.16, but I do think <laughs> that John 3.16-21 reflects the perspective of the gospel authors in a conceptual framework of perishing versus having eternal life. Light versus darkness. Mm-hmm. Evil versus truth. Believers versus unbelievers. 
And, and I think this reflects the setting of the Johannian community much more than Jesus' ministry. Because there's this kind of rigid dichotomy between those who are in and those who are mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. And I think that very likely resulted from the fact that the Johannian Christians were expelled from the synagogue. And so I think we should see this as reflective of a later time and not necessarily Jesus' perspective on salvation or on how do we view people. I think that's actually really important to keep that in mind with this one because I, and as we'll see with our reformers and we know from our contemporary culture as well, this is really misunderstood. And we tend to look at this very literally and in a very judgment oriented way, this, these parts of the passage. Sure. And I think that hurts Christianity when we do that. I, I, think, do it, I think it's hurtful to people. I so I agree. I think this is, um, this is definitely tailored then to the specific community and a specific experience. Mm. I think, you know, we can't just simply say, well, verses 16 through 21, you know, that's his commentary. This doesn't reflect Jesus. It's, it's part and parcel of the fourth gospel's interpretation of Jesus, which we find throughout the gospel. Right. So we can't just toss it out, but we have to be, I think, aware that, you know, this was a mindset of us against them that we should be careful of adopting. I agree. Now, you know, having said that, John 3.16 really seems to be pretty much a restatement of John 3.14 to 15. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, right. it's saying a lot the same thing, but it adds some things. It mm-hmm. adds the contrast between yes. perishing and having eternal life. And I would say more significantly, it frames Jesus being lifted up as an action of God in giving his son that was motivated by love for the world. So this really sort of points to the idea that the in- incarnation is an act of God's love for the world. You know, I think this idea of perishing versus eternal life stems from, it seems to me that the authors of the gospel are intent upon understanding and explaining unbelief in light then of God's unconditional love. How is it that we have this wonderful act of God's love in sending the light into the world and people either fail to believe or refuse to believe. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think they're trying to trying to understand that. But I personally find it ironical that this whole section begins with an affirmation that Jesus' death springs from God's love for the world, but and then, then it concludes and it that many are excluded from that <laughs> exactly. love. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. It's a conundrum. And you read it, and you're, oh, I can't wrap my brain around it. So, yeah, yeah which, piece do you, which piece do you take? Right. Or how do you reconcile it? We'll look at that. We'll look at that. Now, one part of that is looking at the world, because the world is a concept in John's gospel that has two very different connotations. Mm. Some even frame it as if uh, the world in John's gospel is wholly negative. But I don't think you see that here in John 3.16, because in in John 3.16, the world is the world of humanity who are Mm -hmm. in need of salvation Mm -hmm. by God and are the objects of God's love. And we see that in other places in John's gospel. But it is true that most of the references to the world depict the world as in a negative light, as those who are opposed to Jesus and God. Uh, the world rejects the light we have here in mm-hmm. verse 19. It is under the power of an evil ruler. We have later on, it directs hate and persecution toward the church, and it is overcome by Jesus. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, the world seems to be a hostile enemy. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think this reflects the situation of John's gospel and, and John's community that is perhaps long after the time of Jesus' ministry. I don't really hear that kind of hostility between the world and, and the church mm-hmm. reflected in the Synoptic Gospels. As you're saying that, I, I'm just processing that in terms of how Christians have interpreted this over the time then when they talk about 
the world itself is just being purely evil. Well, it's almost a commonplace in Christian language. The world means people who are not in church. Sometimes it's, we have to go out into the world and and preach the gospel to people who are in need. Uh, but many times it's the world as, you know, they're the enemy and they're mm-hmm. hostile toward us. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I think John's gospel uh, may have influenced us here. I, I think it has. I think yeah. it has. I keep thinking about the imagery, too, um, that John uses in light and dark and mm-hmm. evil and good. Sure. Um, this kind of... <sighs> it's a stark either or. There's no in between. It really is. Yeah. It really is. It really is. And so let's move on then um, to this next section about the judgment. Explain this. (laughs) This is tough because, I mean, it starts off with 317. You know, God did not send the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But then it goes on to talk about how those who don't believe are condemned. And so we have this stark contrast between those who are Mm -hmm. perishing, those who have eternal life, between those who are saved versus those who are judged the word in the in the greek is krino which is to judge but here it's very likely has the implication of to to condemn and both the statements that those who believe have eternal life in him and the statements about those who don't believe are already condemned really kind of reflect the idea that in the perspective of the fourth gospel eschatology is already right. realized. Right. It's not eternal life is not something you have to wait for. It's something you have now. Mm-hmm. And in the same sense, judgment is not something that occurs in the uncertain or indeterminate future, but rather it is something that occurs now. And the deciding factor really is your decision to believe or not to believe. That's what decides yeah. the judgment. Yeah. I keep thinking about this whole idea of decision, which we'll talk about with our reformers, because that becomes really a stickler for them. And I think that's contemporary for today. But another thing that, as, as we're talking about these, it strikes me about the writing is the word pictures that John mm. is drawing for us. And I, I wonder about the stark language in terms of language, but it really paints a picture for us. And does that in some way help a reader visualize or or draw them in? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I, I think, as I've said before, I think we're, we're looking at a community that is um, under attack. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are a minority. They're not the majority. Um, very likely, we're looking at some Jewish Christians who've been thrown out of the synagogue. And so, you know, in that setting, what happens is you tend to, your, your language tends to reflect sort of a circle the wagons mentality. Mm-hmm. And so out there is danger. Yeah, they are the enemy. In here right. is safety. We are, you know, we are the ones who are on God's side. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, though, when you th- and, and I, I, I could see how this is drawn in into contemporary Christianity in some cases, but on the other hand, you keep thinking about Christianity based on fear, and that's got a real mm. problem with it because it also leads to judgment. So what, a, and of course, this passage has been well, and that's abused what, that way. That's the point of this passage is that Jesus' very presence reveals a, a judgment that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. occurs. And so what you have then is kind of a rationale that's offered for the idea that some believe and some don't believe. And the judgment is basically they've not believed in the only begotten Son of God, and so mm-hmm. they're already condemned. Mm-hmm. And you know we see it 
following in the verses following that people loved darkness and hated the light because their deeds and presumably they themselves Mm -hmm. were evil. And so you have this sense in John's gospel where one's decision either for or against faith in Jesus defines not only your character, but also your destiny. And it's done. There's no middle ground. There's right. no, right. well, maybe there's time. There's none of that. It's, it's done. It's done. And, and to mm-hmm. me, that is very problematic. When, mm-hmm. we, when we take that approach that, that if you don't have faith in Jesus, then you are a part of the world. Perhaps you are the enemy. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you are a threat. And there is no hope for you in terms of salvation, you know, and that's kind of the way this, this it, phrase it really is, is, you know, it's it like really is. a big, really stark either or kind of dualism. That seems problematic to me to identify everyone's character and their destiny by their current faith or lack thereof. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's within our purview. And, I, and I'm afraid I would have to say that the authors of John's gospel have overstepped a bit with their interpretation here, reading their situation into into the language right. of Jesus. Right, I, I agree, I agree. And so I think we have to look at the broader gospel tradition mm-hmm. in order to place this in the context um, appropriately. Um, as you know, did. really this sounds more to me like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Where, where the yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls reflected a community that had withdrawn mm-hmm. to Absolutely. the desert. They saw the temple establishment in Jerusalem as corrupt. Mm -hmm. They saw Mm -hmm. everyone else besides them as the sons of darkness. They're the sons of light. And even one of the Qumran scrolls is called the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness, you know, And, and that's kind of the mentality. And it's, that's still what happens when we adopt this very rigid either or, you yes. know, the world versus the church mentality, you see hostility, whether it's there or not. And you sometimes you envision sort of almost that you are going to be the agent of God's retribution against those wicked and evil sinners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. again, yeah, I have yeah, a real yeah, yeah. problem with that. I do from, too. From a theological standpoint. I, I, I do too. I do too. So, and I think it'll be interesting as we see how this is handled in the Reformation and some of the issues that they come up with. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. We're back, and so I'm just going to jump in and ask Christy to jump in and tell us about how the Reformers saw this passage. Give us some context. Sure. Well, when I started reading their comments, it it occurred to me that we're dealing with a worldview that's different than now. And so I thought I'd also provide you with kind of their worldview. It's really easy for us to come in and and comment on these folks from kind of our contemporary time without realizing of their reality. And the reality is, even though we're in the middle of uh, reforming the church, they still have a mentality of Christendom. And this idea of one church still permeates their mindset. And some of us look at, oh, Luther went out to protest and change the church. Luther thought he was returning to the true church. And all of those folks did to the church of Jesus Christ. And so I think that's a really important piece to keep in mind when we're looking at this. Would it be fair to say that Luther didn't set out to start a new church, but rather Mm -hmm. he was trying to bring the one church 
Yes. To, to become yes. the true church. Absolutely. He was restoring the church to yeah. its true identity that had it had gone astray. And they really all felt that way. Mm-hmm. And there was always hope and vision that as they started to dig into the scriptures and as they fragmented, that they would come back. There were major mm-hmm. players in there trying to get everyone on the same page, but egos get in the way, human sure. sin gets in the way. It never happened, you know, and um, frankly, those discussions still go on as you see the different denominations in these discussions of, of where can we agree enough that we can move forward together. And yet, you know, I find it interesting because most people, if they say, what religion are you? They mean, what brand of church do you go to, right? <laughs> A couple years ago, I went to a conference. Um, we're right by Creighton um, University in Omaha, and I went to a nice piece. It was on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and it was really on the efforts that the Roman Catholic Church and um, the ELCA had made towards reconciliation. And they had this beautiful reconciliation piece they had done together, and just on where we do agree and where we celebrate our our identity as Christians. And I, it was really beautiful, awesome, and that yeah. these efforts are are really still ongoing. And um, in the PCUSA, I know we're continuing to have regular, yes. um, we're in full communion with the United Church of Christ, the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, um, as well as the ELCA, and we're working on more of those spaces that we well, can be and in And we're in constant with. dialogue with the, with the Roman Catholic Church as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, and the Episcopalians and the Methodists and all these other groups. So these efforts are still ongoing and sharing our, our commonality of, of faith in Christ. So, I, I, I think you get sort of a rhetoric sometimes from the perspective of the Catholic Church, that the Protestants splintered yes, away absolutely. from the one church. The whole word pro- protest, Protestant, mm-hmm. suggests that, oh, these people got mad and went and started their own church, and right. that's not it at all. Yeah. And um, it's important to that's be in that context, space. Yeah. yeah. Their mentality is that I think permeates as, as they're looking into these scriptures and they're looking into what it what it means to be a Christian, and, and, and my thought into what it means to be part of the elect. So we could talk about that, but everyone around them that is faithful is seemingly part of the elect. I mean, that, that's how they understand that. And so this is really becomes a, a, a scripture of who's in and who's out, who's judged and who's not. You know, this is, okay, we're talking about time period-wise. This is... Um, 1517, we start the Reformation, right? We were just starting our overseas discovered discoveries, right? 1492, Columbus sailed. You all know this, right? <laughs> right? Okay, so we have only started overseas discoveries. We're only partly really involved with with this kind of global world that we're used to now. I mean, well, there, and perhaps there's some people who still think that if you sail too far, you'll sail off the end of the world. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's knowledge of this place called China that you get over the Silk Road they've been bringing in. You know, that's why they want to get to the other side of the world. But there's still not that regular interaction that will happen once you really get into a world system um, that comes with this early modern period. So by the time we hit that 18th century, 19th century, we get all those missionaries who have to go convert. That mentality was because we have to, these people have to accept Christ at this time. They have, they have to be Christian or we're going to lose them. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time, not so much. So if you weren't in, you were out. It seems like it was really judgmental, but if you were really, really behaving really badly, it was a sign that you simply weren't part of the elect. And it really wasn't such a big deal. You know, th- this idea of, of ultimately trying to save these people wasn't a part of that reality, at least by and large. So did they just sort of consign them to hell and that's that? Well, yeah, you know, absolutely. It was actually 
really meant to be kind of a sense of of hope for the believers, mm-hmm. but yet it could be used as a way to condemn those that had no hope anymore. Well, I, th- I think when those people who have no hope or are consigned to hell become members of your own family, then it gets a little bit personal. <laughs> uh, ex- well, exactly. But of course, then, you know, is there hope in those person? Can they be forgiven for these sins? I mm-hmm. think there's still a sense of hope there in a way. But on the other hand, there's a sense, it's still a time when we really pretty easily put people to death. There's really yeah. no issue with that. I mean, the, um, mm. the executioner is absolutely uh, an important part of the society at the wow. time. And so yeah. in a time now... It's hard to even imagine that. I know, I know. And it was considered to be a, a pretty noble job. These guys took it... <laughs> really? They considered, took it very seriously of how wow. they could how they could oh. be executioners and do it as... It gives me the shivers. It's horrible. It was an honorable job. These people were not redeemable. Uh, they Maybe had, it was an act of mercy. Even. It was an act of mercy. Absolutely. Wow. It was a very strange, it's very strange mm. time for wow. us. And of course, it's not going to be too long where we're going to hit into uh, witchcraft trials, things like that. The yeah. mal- uh, Malleus Maleficarum. Well, you know what? I think it comes out. I actually think it comes out in the late 15th century. I should look. So we already have this idea of, of, of witchcraft really and, being and, a central and piece. The, and the horrible things you have to do to them to reveal their, that they are Absol- witches and then, oh, absolutely. And then to rid, rid yourself of the witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just want you to get a sense of that worldview because it, it really felt like it impacted their response to this passage. Mm. Anyway, one of the big pieces here was very Reformation-oriented, a prescription for faith over works. Well, right? that makes sense in a Reformation absolutely. context. Absolutely, <laughs> in the Reformation context, and that good works naturally flow from faith. So all of this, this whole thing from the serpents, um, you know, <laughs> where the serpents are indeed sin and evil, that's exactly what's viewed. And then the, the, the one that raised up on a stick, that, that is Christ, the healer, if you looked at Christ. So they were kind of comparing that. So they're allegorizing the Old Testament. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And this isn't they, I should say. This, is, this was the work of Wolfgang Musculus. We, we ran into Wolfgang before. He was a, a German reformer, right? So he was basically following the ideas of Luther. Um, he was known for being a great organizer in the church. So not so much for his theology, but I think it's interesting to see how the theology pushes to some of these guys. Anyway, that's that's the first place that we kind of see uh, faith over works. But then we also talk about the worldview of judgment that came with who, who Jesus is. Well, again, that's not surprising given the, the tenor of the passage. Exactly. So, and it was Martin Bootser. And Bootser, the Strasbourg reformer, you know, we've talked a little about Bootser before, but he becomes really important in this passage, I think, because it's Bootser that really starts a lot of the discussion of predestination, a mm. double double predestination. Mm. The ideas that we think of more with Calvin, but we probably should think more about with Martin Bootser. Oh, they really come from Bootser, huh? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And we forget that Calvin's floating around um, the Swiss cantons at this time, and he's interacting with all these folks. Um, it's just that he's his 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 theology is so systematic and it's so complete in the institutes that we tend to credit him with more mm. than maybe we should Bootser. But Bootser was in this conversation the whole time, but Bootser was more about trying, he spent a lot of efforts trying to reconcile, um, but huge reformer. I think if you study reformers a lot, you can't jump over him at all. He's just right. too important in the conversation um, and clearly has a great impact on Calvin. But for him, he really picked up on the word judge. 
um, that Jesus came to not to condemn. And I think there's a difference there between judge, which implies I'm going to come and I'm going to decide whether you're good or bad versus condemn, which is always evil. Um, well, and just as an aside, you know, in the Greek, krino means to judge, katakrino means to condemn. But there are times when krino refers to more of a positive kind of evaluation, and there are times when it implies a more of a negative one. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, SV just translates it as condemn here. And mm-hmm, so that, that mm-hmm. makes sense that he would go there. Yeah. But I think that, that this is pointed out by Bootser, points out that you know Jesus has a really different role here. And this idea that Jesus isn't condemning. Sounds like he's focusing on verse 17 almost more than verse 16. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, But his point is there's an emphasis on love here instead of fear. And so while I'm putting this in the context, we're talking, we've talked about all this bad stuff. Our reformers are still trying to focus on the love. But what happens then is kind of how that fits the other side, that this is love and that you should be motivated by the love of Christ that came not to condemn you, but came out of love. And hopefully this is a sense of liberation for people that feel that they can't do good enough. Again, they're well, doing yeah, works I mean, righteousness. You, if you think about that medieval church that you described for us in an earlier podcast, mm-hmm. you know, where they, the very the very sculpture above the doorways that they where they went to church was a depiction of heaven and hell and sinners being punished and the fear that that inspires, you know, that makes sense that mm-hmm. Bootser would focus on on the love right. that is that is re- reflected in this passage. And, and Luther does this as well. I mean, Christ is a comforter and helper. Um, so the, the idea is if you are in the church and you are following God and you're inspired to be doing good works by your faith, you can be comforted and assured that you are saved. That's the piece that's so important. Yeah, here. and perhaps in the medieval era, maybe it was more of, uh, it seems to me that it was more of, you didn't know till the end. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think what's interesting, though, compared to a modern construct, though, is that God's love is still tied up with wrath. And that's a mm-hmm. little bit hard for us to understand. In Calvin's terms, it's the total depravity sense that we are sinners. No matter what we do, it's always going to be out of sin. The only way is to, if you will, live into this pure love that is that is from God. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we talk about as become kind of part of our our modern Protestant tradition. But that's a really big understanding is they don't just dump wrath away, that that's absolutely part of of God's being. God hates sin. Mm. And that God is angry by sin. Mm. And, and that... So they have plenty of room for an angry God. Yeah. It's kind of a strange space because it's tied up with love. It's kind of like a... Uh, Tough love, if mm-hmm. you will. You know, there's some expectations there that you that you are responding in love, and so it's definitely there, and it's definitely there more than in a modern context. They they aren't ready to write that off, and I think it's some of the Anabaptists would go further than and and maybe dump out some of the wrath, depending on mm-hmm. which ones they were. You know, saying look, this wrath piece isn't really a, a, a god of love, but and I think I mentioned it before. It is the first time we're really we're really seeing and starting to to shape God in that in that framework. For example, you know, Luther, and we've talked about Luther and his whole um, printer stamp, which is a, a heart mm-hmm. indicating God's love. Um, so that's a kind of a cool So it sounds shift. like maybe maybe some of the language of condemnation for those who don't believe is a, that, that some of the reformers saw that as a reflection of God's wrath. Absolutely. 
that was the next, exactly the next space to go is that's a sign of God's wrath, right? Mm. And it depends on who you're talking to because there is discussion here. It's not like all the reformers agree, right? We know all the reformers don't agree on double predestination. We know all the reformers don't agree as to how you were saved. One of the things that came out to me in this was what faith is. And if faith is in itself a work or whether it's faith is something you're given in advance. Mm-hmm. And so I found the Lutherans and the Lutheran school tended to be, um, they tended to be a little bit softer onto faith is something you do. There seemed to be a little bit of human agency in that. Yeah. But it was our folks that go on a reform side that tend to say, no, you're kind of chosen beforehand whether you'll have faith or not. And so that leaves this really strange space of reprobate. But what's interesting about the reprobate is that this is part of God's overall loving scheme, which is interesting that good will come out of this evil. Good will come out of people being reprobate. Yeah. So Good will come out of people being condemned. Yeah. <laughs> wrap your brain around that. And to me, that's a little bit of a theological hole that I think... Yeah. First of all, I think it continues to plague the Reformed tradition. <laughs> and, and secondly, I think it's one of those things that that some of our modern-day Reformers have tried to deal with. You know, how do, how do we make sense of this? And, mm-hmm. and one of the people, in one of the Reformers said, look, here's the deal that we don't know, is that n- none, of us, none of us are perfected and f- saved until Christ comes again. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the, right. you know, ultimate. And I think that's an interesting turn on it. And, uh, and I think also, when, if you really put it into Calvin's context of sovereignty of God, you really don't know. That's how I would look at that. But again, when I was reading, one of the other pieces that came through to me in this was, what is sin? Is it a state of being or is it an act? And it seems mm. to be kind of going back and forth. Something you do, I sinned, I made a bad mistake, or is that a state of your, of your humanity? Well, and I can see that back and forth in this passage because it's it's almost like, you know, it says that, that the folks who don't believe, don't believe, they don't come to the light because their deeds are evil, but the implication is, and so are they. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. do you read that implication in or do you, do you not? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So what a strange space. So one of the reformers I, I found, this is his name is Johannes Brenz. He's also a Lutheran reformer. He claims, look, we can do things that we perceive as good, that are virtuous by our minds as, as human beings. But because we perceive them as good, those aren't necessarily good in the eyes of God. Mm. Because we're maybe finding some kind of human value from it. For example, we may do something that's good to someone else, but we may be looking for it for some kind of human pride or something to brag about. You know, I did this great thing for somebody, but hey, look at me and saying, look, these are still tainted. So everything we do in his, in his world, everything we do is, has a sin tainted to it. So sin is part of who we are. That's how his take on it would be. I'll have to confess, you know, some of these ideas, you know, reprobation leading to good and and God's wrath and even good things we think we do being tainted. That doesn't feel comforting to me. <laughs> that feels no. more more unsettling to I me. I agree. I think it's 100% unsettling and I think that absolutely reflects the age. And some people call really beginning with the reformation up through mid 17th century um the age of anxiety. Mm. And I think that's really fair. Because you can imagine all these ideas, everyone's now being exposed to scripture, and then this theology is being poured out over the top instead of, hey, I just do these things. I go, I go to church twice a year. They tell me Jesus loves me. I just try to do my best. I, I go confess my sins. This is really digging into everybody's identity 
mm. who they who I am and whether I'm saved or not mm. and where is evil and so this is really this is really hitting into everyone and who they are and it I think is absolutely contributing to the age of anxiety yeah that makes sense <laughs> and so think about when the church and even they're trying to have these comforting thoughts, it's still steeped in these well, they have difficult this, concepts. They have this uh, sort of not so subtle message of God loves you, but if uh, if you don't live up, if you don't measure up, right. you know you're going to be condemned. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's a weird space, isn't it? And 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 you see that you see that play out. I mean, yeah, you you're forgiven, but. You're, hey, if you're a Christian disciple, you're supposed to be acting in this way. I mean, we saw that very clearly in mm-hmm. Geneva. The rule book was pretty darn strict yeah. for um, almost all of them. And I think this was interesting, too. And again, going back to whether you choose faith or not, was that the greatest sin was unbelief. Yeah. Unbelief. And I can see them going there based on the John, based on John's gospel, because there there does seem to be some some basis for mm-hmm. that in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, if you're chose to believe ahead of time, <laughs> you know what a strange space. If you're the elect prior to your knowledge of faith, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interesting things there that haven't been through. But I thought I'd end because it's Luther, and I, I pulled out this horrible quote. And, and Luther says this: "There is no greater sin than unbelief." Everything else is trifling in comparison. Faith makes it so that our shit doesn't stink. So the sum of it all is that unbelief is the sun, <laughs> the sun in our only sin. So unbelief in the sun is our only sin. Yes, thank you. Mm. Yeah, that's Luther, huh? <laughs> you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Yeah, there you go. Friends, that was quoted from a sermon in 1538. Now imagine that from the pulpit. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that works in this day and time. That gives you an idea, a perspective from the, uh, from the Reformation, but I, I think it suggests some of the issues, how this comes forward to us into the modern world and some of the things that we're still tripping over from our, our heritage from the Reformers. Yeah, and I mean, I can see theologically and biblically the idea that the fundamental sin for all of them is unbelief, whether it's in mm-hmm. God or in Jesus, and, and that is the root sort of, of all that we may mm-hmm. do wrong. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, biblically and, it does. and theologically. It does, it does um, absolutely. Unfortunately, the way that gets applied is if I go through the motions and I look like I'm a, I'm a believer on the outside, then I'm good. And if you don't, you're not. Right. That's, that's the whole thing, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And it also begs the question of, well, gosh, what if, what if, what if I haven't mm-hmm. heard of Jesus? And what if I or haven't? What if I have heard and haven't? come to faith yet and yeah. come to faith yet and so how does that play into it and sounds like good questions for our next segment. i think it'd be great questions all right thanks christy thanks We're back, and if you've, if you've been with us, you've heard a lot about belief and unbelief, uh, the church versus the world, us versus them kind of mentality, both in John's gospel and reflected in the theology of the Reformers. And I think I want to begin our, our last segment by asking Christy to just reflect on how this affects us today. Well, I, I do think it reflects us be, on us because we, 
we don't really know where we stand sometimes as, as, as Christians or as it, within the world. And when I first thought about this question, and it reminds me of a, a question posed to me or a comment posed to me by an atheist friend of mine. And we got into a discussion about faith. And, and she's like, well, you know, I, I don't believe. And she says, I am not a sinner. And so her whole construct was that the whole idea of sin was just not acceptable in mm. terms of that that's a terrible way to form your worldview. And, but what struck me was then her whole reality is completely defined within herself. And so that's kind of the first thing that I thought there is, I think it's, it's that our reality is steeped in God and who God is, which is love. And that, that our faith, whatever realization it is, and I don't think it's that, that people are non-believers can't do good works, good things. We see that all the time. But I think we have to think about where that, where, what is that ultimate de- definition of good, of, of love and hope. And I guess that's in God. That's who God is by def- definition. And I think it's that definition of God that somehow admits they, they want to take away God's characteristics and attribute it to something different. And I think in her worldview, it's, it was, well, my definition, love is in me. And so it's separate. Of, it's not separate of my identity. I'm, I'm the definer of it. And, and I think we can see all the problems with that, that kind of worldview right there. Sure. And yet I would say, you know, I've met plenty of people who had a real problem with the church. I've had, I've known people who didn't like having a confession of sin in church because, you know, when you start out with the definition, I am fundamentally a sinner. My fundamental identity is that of a sinner. Mm -hmm. That's quite a negative concept. And some people really go deep with that and it, it Mm -hmm. becomes a burden for them to carry. And, you know, we in the church, I'm, I'm afraid, for centuries have just piled on to that burden instead of really bringing comfort to these people. And, you know, we have this language of God is love, mm-hmm. but, but yet there is this notion of, but you are sinner. Mm-hmm. And there are people in, in other, I guess, in other facets of our culture who react against that. You know, they want to see an original goodness in humanity as opposed to original sin. Right, and, uh, right. you know, as a, as a Reformed Christian, I think I, I see room for both. You know, if we're created in the image of God, and if to some extent that image of God is, is restored in us through our Christian faith, then we can claim an original goodness that oh, comes from God. And yet at the same time, I, I am all too aware that I fall short in all kinds of ways. And, and to me, that is original sin. And right, right, right. I, I think, though, that maybe what happens is we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, I agree. if you will. Yep. I spent plenty of time in the Baptist world. And... 20 years, basically. Mm-hmm. And and Baptists love and love to quote John 3.16, oh, for God yes, so loved course. the world, you know, and, and you have all kinds of sermons about God's love in the Baptist world. But the fundamental starting point in that world is you're a sinner. And that's what gets hammered home. And that's what people hear as the fundamental starting point. And I've told people, you know, in my pilgrimage from the Baptist world to the Presbyterian world, one of the things I love is that the starting point in, in the Presbyterian world is the grace of God mm-hmm. wins out overall. God's grace claims us before the right. foundation of the world. Yes, yes, yes. And God loved us before the foundation exactly. of the world. And so the, exactly. the, the starting place for how we define ourselves and how we define others is God's love, right. not 
that we fall short. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you're talking here, and I, I was thinking about that in particular, and I was thinking about this um, this space of the good world that God created. And as someone who has taught quite a bit in world religions, um, there are traditions, um, world religion traditions, where the, the world's really evil. Mm-hmm. And so the whole purpose of the world is to escape that evil. Now, that's a very different space. The whole purpose space. of life, yeah. The whole, pur- the whole purpose of your life is to escape yeah. evil and to and to get out of this state of being evil. Um, and so this is this is good. And I think about the, the, the golden rule, do unto others, as others would do unto you, as opposed to the silver rule, which is do not do to others. I think that's a really important contrast. I often see people say, oh, well, they're the same thing. I'm like, no, they're not. Because one is to asking you to take the love that is in you, that you are called to do and called to do to other people. It is an action form. The other is an inaction form. And there is a big difference between that. And that's why um, it's one of the things that I think is so beautiful about our faith is that it's go out and help people. Go out and be kind to people. Go out and be love giving love to others. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, I think this, this mindset that we have in the Johannine gospel of uh, the world versus the church, belief Mm -hmm. versus unbelief, uh, light versus darkness, good versus evil. It too often translates into our context. And there's a danger to that, I think. I agree. I can understand it from the perspective of a church that is in the minority and that is that is under attack. They, they, they have to draw strong boundaries in order to be able to maintain their identity right. and to be able right. to maintain I their agree. community. I agree. But when, when the church becomes so ubiquitous like it is today, we, we are not persecuted in this country. Mm-mm. And yet you will find Christians who will say that the church is is under fire in this country. And so what it gives rise to is really somewhat a kind of Christian nationalism that Mm -hmm. sees anybody who's not like me Anybody who's right. not in my church, maybe not even anybody who's my anybody oh, who's yeah. not a Catholic or anybody who's not a Lutheran or anybody who's not a Presbyterian, they are an enemy. And right. so we have to not only guard against them, but we might have to uh, we might have to defend ourselves and actually um, engage in active hostility toward right. them. And that is dangerous. Well, it's it's. It's faith out of fear. It's also faith in oneself as, as the absolutely. chosen ones of God. Absolutely. And therefore, because we're the chosen ones of God, whatever we do is God's will. In whether it's whether it's slaughtering Muslims yep. Yep. by the tens of thousands in the Crusades, right. or whether it's bombing a, a clinic, right, or, right, or whatever right. it may be, um, there's no sense of separation between God's will and what we see as good. That's the real danger, I think, in that whole mentality. Absolutely. And, and again, I think the answer is the sovereignty of God's grace. Yeah. You know, we, we joke about Jürgen Moltmann's my favorite Reformed theologian. <laughs> and this one of the main reasons is because... I'm going to make a little song about him <laughs> next, next week, a Jürgen Moltmann song. There you go. Uh, you know, but this is one of the reasons why I love Moltmann is because he is thoroughly biblical, but he thoroughly interprets the Bible from the perspective of the sovereignty of God's Absolutely. grace. And frankly, here's a little side story, and that is that Karl Barth asked Moltmann in a letter to complete his church dogmatics. And Moltmann politely declined. Moltmann had his own theological right, project. Right, right. But in reading Bart and in reading Moltmann, I would say that in fact Moltmann does 
in a sense, serve as the completion of Bart's theological enterprise. Because where Bart left off, Moltmann takes up. Mm -hmm. And that is with this idea that we have hope. When we look toward the future, when we look toward God's Mm -hmm. future, we have hope. A lot of Bart scholars will point out that at the beginning of Bart's church dogmatics, Bart did not affirm the idea in the Bible that all people will be redeemed by God's grace. Right, right. Of course, I think with all these guys, you have to remember that they're part of that confessing church. That Nazi Germany is at their door. Sure. And so you have to think about the worldview from where they started. To well, you partly. also have to realize also that he wrote the dogmatics over the course of 30 years. Right, right. And so in the early volumes of the dogmatics, he is a little more sharp on, on belief sure. and unbelief and, sure. and Christians versus non-Christians. But in, it's in, in volume four where, where you see he really comes to this standpoint that it's God's grace that determines our identity and our destiny, not what we do, not what we choose. He has a statement in uh, Book 4, Volume 3, uh, 2. He says, he is the light of the world, and therefore to be man or to be human mm-hmm. is always to stand already, even with closed or blind eyes, right. in this light, right. the light of life. And throughout this section, there's, there's several pages where Bart is interacting with this light against mm-hmm. darkness theme yes, 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 in, yes, yes. in John's gospel. And he takes the very language of John and he uses that. And he says, look, if he's the light of life, then he's the light of life. He's not maybe or not right. going to well, be. He is yeah, the light yeah, of life. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about this. There are words here that were particularly drawn to that, you know, my, in my, my picture imagery, light, Mm -hmm. you know, light, uh, light allows us to see light gives us warmth. I mean, how many of you want to be in a dark cave? None of us do. And so I, I I think, I think these are meant to be words of hope in a lot of ways because we can see the imagery because we don't want to be the people in the dark. And but poor Nicodemus comes in the dark. He's seeking light. <laughs> right, He's just, you know. Right. Well, and, and Moltmann comes at it from the perspective of love, that God's love is the ultimate factor that determines our identity and our destiny for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and our choice, our decision to believe or not to believe cannot override the sovereign God. Exactly. Otherwise, we sort of bring God down on our level. We bring God And down. we exalt absolutely. ourselves up to the level of God. And absolutely. Yeah. So this is... So I love this. I love this reformed emphasis on the sovereignty of God's mm-hmm. grace. And and the idea is that God's grace prevails in the end. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not yeah. a, quote, universalism in that it doesn't matter how you live or it doesn't matter what you do. You know, in the end, everybody goes to heaven. It's more the idea of this is the power of the Christ event, Mm -hmm. the fact that God becomes flesh in Christ, dies on the cross, rises again, breaks the power of death, Mm -hmm. ascends again Mm -hmm. to glory, reigns at the right hand. You know, the idea Mm -hmm. is that, that this event is what has the power to define the destiny for all people. So it's it's not so much of an anything goes kind of idea. And that's right. kind of what tends to happen with the idea of a universal salvation. You're right. You're right. It's really it more the idea of universal redemption through yes. the love of oh, God that's in Christ. Perfect. Yes. And what I'm loving about this conversation is I'm hoping you're hearing I see this kind of progression as, as some of these ideas are grappled with and as God's love is grappled with, but how we make sense of it. Then when you realize, oh, sovereignty of God's grace, that really provides a 
a benchmark or a, a foundational yes. statement that everything else can make sense all of a sudden. An interpretive lens, so to speak, through which to read some of the verses in the end of this passage that are a little bit troubling. We can yeah. read those through the lens of God's grace. Absolutely. Friends, I think, as you're coming to your sermons this this for this week. Uh, think about think about this lens of God's grace as being maybe the the interpretive thing for you as you're looking at this troublesome passage in John. And I'm hope, hopeful that all these pieces that we've added today have helped you think through it. As do I. Thanks, yeah. Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.